Welcome everyone to another episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'm your host, Sean Hall, Director of Programming with the Veterans Breakfast Club. We're a nonprofit in Western PA whose mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to connect, educate, heal, and inspire. This episode, I'm really excited by. We are going to have on the nonprofit Warrior Films. Their mission is to inspire needed social change by telling compelling stories, highlighting transformational solutions. Uh, who's going to be joining us? Frederick Marx. That's right. Uh, he is an internationally acclaimed Oscar and Emmy-nominated director, writer with 45 years in the film business. Uh, he uh, is an incredible filmmaker. Uh, and and the, the stories that he has to tell through his series, Veterans Journey Home, uh, I, I hope that you uh, take in. You'll be able to go to the description here, click on the links, find the trailers for each one of his films, and then go to warriorfilms.org, uh, and you can purchase these films to view. I highly, highly recommend that you take in these films. They are personal stories about veterans coming home and that transition back to civilian life, something we've touched on here many times on The Scuttlebutt. Uh, I hope that you enjoy the conversation that I have with Frederick. Please be sure to like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. And you can always reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N, at veteransbreakfastclub.org, especially if you want to have these films screened in your area. Uh, Frederick is very happy to do that. Over the course of our discussion, we get into the five films a part of this series, uh, those titles being Solutions, Ben's Story, Kalani's Story, On Black Mountain, and Leaving It on the Land. Each one uh, very different in its own right, but each one very moving and effective. Uh, I, I just, I, I can't uh, say enough good things about each one of these films and the series uh, involved as I was able to take in each of them and just, uh, I was very inspired by each one of them. It's a word that we use at the VBC a lot. It's part of our mission, uh, trying to inspire people through veteran stories. And I'm, I, I think Frederick just nails it uh, with each one of these films. Um, thank you again for watching The Scuttlebutt. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Scuttlebutt. Uh, Frederick Marks, I I'm so honored to have you a part of the podcast. As I dove into your history, um, I was really just blown away by your whole filmography, your, your directorial, you're an author. Um, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Thank you so much for joining me here on The Scuttlebutt. Well, thanks, Sean. It's a privilege. Uh, I really enjoy doing this sort of thing. Uh, I've been a filmmaker now for about 45 years. That's kind of my day job, as it were. I'm most known for a film that's almost 30 years old now called Hoop Dreams, uh, which was shown in theaters across the country and uh, sent me to both the Academy Awards and the Emmy Awards. Uh, and um, I, I basically uh, sort of continue to make films, uh, but I'm also now uh, in the last six, seven years migrating also to being a book writer. Mm -hmm. So I just published my third book, actually just a week or so ago. Congrats. And uh, I, I really enjoy writing books. And let's face it, it's a heck of a lot cheaper and easier than making films. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's saying something, really. I mean, uh, the uh, the scuttlebutt audience knows that I have a background in acting, so I can I can hear you on that idea. I've been on film sets, I've seen the production values of things and how how much goes into all of it. Um, but I also know, uh, you know, our executive director for VBC is an author, and I'm sure that there is a a tax uh, on your life uh, for the other side for writing a book. A tax? Yeah, in a way, just like it's it's got to be taxing in other ways than filmmaking. Well. Yeah, I mean, it's, 
I don't know. It, I find it relatively easy. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, you know, but filmmaking is a different chore, right? It's all about raising the money. It's getting other people to hire and, and make the films with you. And then the biggest challenge of all, getting it out into the world so that people see it. Uh, so, you know, we've faced that challenge with our Veterans Journey Home series. Uh, as good as I think these films are, and we've now won, we just won our 11th Best Documentary Award uh, at the Buford Film Festival in South Carolina just about 10, 12 days ago. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, I know they're good films, but, you know, reaching an audience is always a challenge. Definitely. Um, so we want to get to uh, Veterans Journey Home, the, the package of these five incredible films. Um, let's take a step back first uh, here at the beginning of the podcast and talk a bit about how you got into filmmaking. You're not a veteran yourself, is that correct? That is correct. Yeah. So I got into filmmaking. I'll try to make this brief, but when I was an undergraduate, uh, I started taking film history, theory, and criticism courses at the University of Illinois. And uh, after four years, I, I just had so many credits that I, I needed to uh, write a special major uh, so that I ended up graduating with a double major in political science where I barely squeaked by with a minimum of credits. And then I had like three times that number of credits for film history, theory and criticism. And my first career choice was being a film critic. And I went, uh, I wrote for the student newspaper at the University of Illinois, where Roger Ebert had once been uh, the editor. And actually, as I found out later, uh, was kind of a mentee of my father, who started the International Film Club on campus there. So anyway, it was only in graduate school that I made the transition from being a writer and thinking that I would be an academic as my career into being a full-time filmmaker. And once I discovered filmmaking, I had so much fun and I was not looking back. I was like, I'm in for this for my life. And you got into documentaries uh, more specifically. What, what drew you to that style of filmmaking? Well, you know, the fact of the matter is I like filmmaking, period. Mm -hmm. And I like all of the different genres, if you want to call them that. The first couple films I made were actually experimental films short films that experimented with the form of cinema. Uh, but I also love fiction. Uh, and I made a fiction feature, uh, actually was the next film I made after Hoop Dreams. Uh, so I love working with actors. I love writing screenplays. I love being on sets with big crews. But having said all that, yes, I've sort of evolved into being predominantly a documentary filmmaker. And that was a choice that I made pretty much around 2003, when I formed my production company, Warrior Films. Mm -hmm. And we're a nonprofit company, although I hate to use that term nonprofit. We create a lot of profit, but it's social profit. You can't easily measure it in dollars and cents, uh, but we create a lot of good in the world. But I, I decided that, you know, it was going to be important for my future work to have an umbrella where I could do work for the social good and take donations. Mm -hmm. uh, because to that point in time, all of the films I've tried to make as for-profit vehicles failed. <laughs> and, and the ones that were the biggest successes like Hoop Dreams 
were made as nonprofit vehicles. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, okay, this is the way forward for me uh, because documentary filmmaking, it still satisfies my artistic appetites, mm -hmm. but it also does social good in the world. Whereas fiction films and experimental films, arguably less so, meaning it's more difficult for them to do social good. So anyway, so that's for the last 20 years or so, I've largely focused on documentary filmmaking. So why veterans? What are you, you know, Did you come from a military family or what, what drew you to their stories? Yeah, my father was a World War II vet. Hmm. Uh, and he got in the last year and a half of the war. His story itself is amazing. He barely escaped the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, he got out when he was 15. And when his grandfather was taken by the Gestapo and, and shift off to Dachau, the concentration camp. Mm -hmm. So anyway, long story short, uh, he ended up in the country uh, his grandfather actually either escaped or survived Dachau to bring him to the U.S. in January of 1940. They were one of the last ocean liners to make it across the North Atlantic uh, before the traffic was stopped because the German U-boats were actually targeting them. Mm -hmm. So anyway, he made it to this country as a young man. He wanted nothing more than to go back uh, to join the army and to to fight Nazis, to kill Nazis. Yeah. So he got in uh, the last year and a half of the war and served, you know, with distinction. Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, I'm very proud of him and that history. But yes, I'm not a veteran. So this project for me started in 2005. And I got a call from a, a filmmaker friend of mine who invited me to a workshop outside of Houston, Texas called Vets Journey Home. And that's where I stole the title for the series. Uh, and I experienced for the first hand veterans' lives and veterans' stories. And it moved me deeply. Mm -hmm. uh, I couldn't believe it, frankly, that here were uh, most of the vets there were Vietnam vets. Mm -hmm. And 30 years or more after the fact, they were carrying so much pain. Uh, and then I saw the kind the healing that they got in a 48-hour workshop by simply largely being able to tell the stories of their trauma, of their history, of the psychic and emotional baggage that they were carrying, and to get witnessed and held compassionately. Mm -hmm. uh, so th that, that opened my mind deeply, and I started reading more and more about veterans' issues uh, and learning a lot. And, you know, cut to, I guess it was about 12 years later, uh, after I finished one project, my board and I decided, let's turn to this veteran subject matter, because we thought we had a powerful contribution that we could make to the subject of veterans' successful return to civilian life. And so that's what these stories became uh, about. And uh, originally, we were going to make one film. But it was in the course of doing all this filming that my executive producer suggested, you know, we have a lot of great material here. Maybe we can make more than one. And in fact, we ended up with five. So uh, they're all very different stories, very different subjects, mm -hmm. very different styles of filmmaking even. But they all have the same theme. And that theme is how can veterans successfully transition into meaningful civilian life? 
So you mentioned the five films. I'm going to name them here. And uh, for those of you listening or watching, please check out the description. We're going to have links to trailers for all of these. Um, but uh, we have Solutions, Ben's Story, Kalani's Story, On Black Mountain, and Leaving It on the Land. Each one, uh, very, uh, a, a little, like you said, different in style. Each one has its own sort of runtime. Um, but as you started to go down this route of, of filming, I noticed in my viewing of solutions, we meet some of the characters that we're going to, not characters, but we meet some of the veterans uh, that we uh, see in, in a couple of the other films. At, at first, how did you find, you found the group in Texas, how did you uh, decide who to focus in on uh, and then create the other stories out, out of from that? Was it who just yeah. accepted and said, sure, you can film me doing this very personal journey? Or, you know, how did that develop? Yeah, well, and you're right to point out Solutions. I think of Solutions as kind of the umbrella film, the film that introduces the whole series. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, we see little excerpts of some of the other four films in that film. The way that I typically work is I first identify the people that I think are doing wonderful transformational work with veterans. Mm -hmm. So I located a number of organizations and people whose work I loved and respected, including Patricia Clayson, who founded Healing Warrior Hearts, who, by the way, also founded Vets Journey Home, uh, this, the, the other organization. Um, uh, I, I located uh, Veteran Rights, the organization that became Veteran Rights, uh, et cetera. And so what I do is I ask them, okay, when are you holding these trainings, these workshops? And then once I get their permission to come and film a given workshop, then I ask for the list of attendees, who's coming. And so from there, I start calling and I talk to every single person, partly, of course, to just simply introduce myself and say, look, it's my intention to film this. So I want your permission to be able to do that but also to do what we might call casting. So I look for subjects who I think, oh, well, this is a very interesting person whose story I'd like to follow. So that's how uh, I met Ben uh, for Ben's story. And in a similar sort of fashion, although not quite the same, that's how I met Kalani for his story. Uh, Kalani, um, his his story, that particular film was uh, very moving, um, he, you know, each one of these uh, films is is sort of dealing with uh, veterans' trauma, and Kalani seemed to have dealt with a lot of trauma um, and had this incredible arc over the course of the documentary. Um, and I found it amazing while watching it that that he was so open uh, and so honest. And where he's at now, where he where he's brought himself to, was so different from the beginning of the film. Uh, I can imagine that just sitting with him would be quite inspiring. Well, he's a beautiful man and he is inspiring. And in fact, uh, you know, I, I hesitate to say this, uh, spoiler alert, but uh, we see him found a nonprofit to help homeless vets called Cammies and Canines. And he's since the, the end of the filmmaking moved on from that. Mm. So he put together a beautiful board to support veterans in their transition. And now he's moved on to another company uh, where he's actually building housing for people of all stripes and sizes. Mm -hmm. uh, so I think of Kalani as kind of a serial entrepreneur. Uh, but yes, the, the reason why he, I think, well, part of the reason why he was so open 
to our cameras from the very get-go because he knew me and he trusted me. We had actually worked together in a workshop, uh, a group called the Mankind Project. We had done a, a weekend workshop called the New Warrior Training Adventure. And Kalani was, I, I, this is kind of a weird word to use for this context, but was kind of one of the stars mm. of this workshop. And so we met each other and I was on the staff, I was leading it. Uh, so anyway, we we met then, we bonded then, and it was only about a year later, I thought, well, duh, why don't I put Kalani in one of these films? And so I did. Mm -hmm. um, and before we get on to the other films, a question I have for you personally is, as you started to develop an understanding of veterans returning home, the trauma they were experiencing, how was this changing you and your filmmaking and your idea of, of uh, bringing these, these stories out? Well, it's changed a lot of my thinking. You know, uh, originally, I actually thought that the focus of the films, in a sense, had to be on veterans healing trauma. Hmm. But the fact of the matter is the way that I conceive of this whole issue now is it's a gigantic societal misunderstanding hmm. that the onus is actually more on civilians more on average citizens, because we have forgotten as a society how to receive and welcome back veterans from their service in ways that are truly meaningful. So yes, it's fine to do parades and to show up at airports with signs and to love on them. That's all well and good, but we need to do more. And we need to do more than pat them on the back and say, thank you for your service. What we really need to do is sit down together with them in ritual spaces where basically the platform, the microphones are turned over to them and they can share with us whatever it is they wanna share about their service, about their own wounding, about their own traumas around whatever baggage they're carrying mm -hmm. from their service. And then symbolically what needs to happen is the burden gets lifted off their shoulders and put where it belongs on our shoulders, the collective. We as a community, as a society, need to hold that with them. And until we get into those ritual spaces, which are in effect what are in the films, are featured in, the, these are all different varieties of ritual spaces where that symbolic transition occurs. So that's one of the ways that my thinking has changed dramatically about these issues. It's so interesting that you say that because uh, I've had a previous guest on the scuttlebutt where I, I posed the question uh, about the military-civilian divide. Whose responsibility is it? Is it more on the vet or is it more on society? And I believe it was a veteran who said it's on the vet. Uh, they felt it was on them to come back and be able to uh, educate society about what they are going through. So to hear a civilian say the other side, no, it's on us, society to sit down with them, give them the microphone, listen, and take their burden from them. Um, boy, that 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 just struck me so so uh, amazingly here. Well, and I agree with that former guest that you had in the sense that, yes, part of the purpose, part of the function of doing these ritual meetings between civilians and veterans is so that we as civilians get educated mm -hmm. about the realities of war, about the realities of service, which too easily we just push off the radar of all of societal life, right? I mean, we have 0.7%, not even 1% uh, of the people who serve in the military 
uh, I mean, from society as a whole, right? Mm -hmm. It re they represent 0.7. So anyway, we need to do more to get uh, citizens more deeply invested and educated in the realities of service and warfare. And have those uncomfortable conversations, because that that's sort of what I felt over the course of the documentary series was, boy, we're sitting in some really uncomfortable conversations about uh, what veterans feel about the reason they served, their, the, the years they served, the people they served with, uh, the trauma they experienced, the, the you know, the, the, the difficult aspects of the of the job that they had no idea when they enlisted that this was something that they are going to have to deal with, um, especially when Kalani talked about a friend of his in the Middle East who was uh, captured by ISIS and burned alive. Uh, you know, that, uh, uh, and he said he had to watch that over and over and over again. Just, I mean, just the simple trauma of that, but, and that's, uh, that's only part of the trauma, full trauma that he experienced over the course of his, his service. Um, but, that you keep coming back to the term ritual spaces and that that by the time i was on i think the third or fourth documentary film I, I started to see that i started to see that through line of these ritual spaces and what drew you to that specifically we've we've talked a lot about you know uh on the scuttlebutt about different places for veterans to go to talk about trauma different things but this particular ritual type space was a little bit different than just going in into a vfw and chatting agreed and, you know, I'm agnostic when it comes to what form a given ritual space should take. To me, it doesn't matter. It's about effectiveness. And it's about uh, having people understand that they can create this on their own. You know, there are doctors in the VA in Philadelphia who are actually creating these beautiful ritual spaces by just having community gatherings where they have veterans up on the stage talking and citizens listening to them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've been interested in, in the creation of ritual space now for over 25 years. And I've done a lot of studying and thought about this. And in fact, it's largely the subject of my second book, which is called Rights to a Good Life, R-I-T-E-S. Mm -hmm. uh, and the subtitle is Everyday Rituals of Healing and Transformation. So the whole idea is basically to introduce this idea back to the general public and help people understand that if we just simply uh, uh, design uh, our own little mini rituals around any kind of common occurrence, mm -hmm. for example, I mean, you told me, you know, you have a, a child, you know, that's five weeks old. Why couldn't the community gather to celebrate you and your partner and to celebrate the emergence of this beautiful new being into the world and to offer their support? And it could just be a simple circle where everybody shows up with, you know, like potluck, you know, with some food and, and says, we love you. We're here to support you. Let us know what we can do. That's a simple ritual, right? So at any rate, uh, the whole point is that we have forgotten how to do this. And in fact, if we if we actually resurrect these things, we will drive the meaning and significance of our own lives much deeper into our own psyches and have that much more fulfillment as human beings than we do now. I say to my wife that I've never been so inundated with food that we received until after we had our son. And I told her, can you have birth every month? Because it'd be nice to just keep getting food in. Um, so that is certainly a great point. Um, 
do you think the ritual spaces that you're talking about, like they seem to go back to sort of like a Native American vibe for me uh, as I was watching them, almost like a shaman, but that also brought up the idea of warriors, ancient warriors back uh, when they were welcomed back to the tribe and how we welcome back warriors to to our tribe, to our society. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, you know, well, I'll tell you the, the first thought that comes to mind, you know, my company is called Warrior Films. Mm -hmm. And uh, I've had friends um, who are peace activists who basically say, how can you call your company Warrior? F I mean, and so the whole point of me choosing that term was basically to try to reappropriate the meaning of that term, mm -hmm. because typically it's it's conflated with soldier or savage even, mm -hmm. right? But in fact, the tradition of the warrior is an extremely noble one. Mm -hmm. And we have a number of quotes on our website, one from Sitting Bull, uh, the Native American uh, chief, talking about warriors are not about uh, taking life indiscriminately. They're about service mm -hmm. to the family, to the community, to the village, you know, put, being willing to put their life on the sacrifice block in order to protect others. That's what a warrior is. Mm -hmm. And so uh, so anyway, so that that um, meaning is really important to me. And I explain that on the website. It's about service. And yes, there are many rituals that uh, exist in our country that are derivative of Native American practices. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we have to be careful about that. You know, are we taking them because you know we've seen it in some movie or something uh, or or are we taking it with a good intention and sort of honoring our native teachers who have blessed us to incorporate these practices in a way that serves our people but the fact is and it's important to remember this we don't have to borrow from other traditions in order to create meaningful rituals we can create them spontaneously on the spot and it only takes two things, attention and intention. Mm -hmm. And the intention is we want to celebrate and honor these people who are part of this ritual. And the attention means, and whatever shows up, we just have to deal with it. <laughs> we just have to accept it. And so we have to be spontaneous because rituals are spontaneous. They're not cookie cutter things. Mm -hmm. They have to be spontaneous. And so... Anyway, my point is made. <laughs> no, and, and I love it. And also something that I noticed, and I, I want to get to Ben's story next, but mainly because as I watch the veterans in the documentaries work within these ritual spaces, the uh, uh, the the people that were running the ritual space, uh, I felt like that they're, they're, it's a difficult position for them to be in as well. It's not, you know, you feel so much for the vets in these documentaries, the, the stories they're telling, what they are going through in their lives, how they are trying to find their own personal new mission. Um, but the people that are running these spaces are also there for them. And they have to be very selfless to be able to sit and be there for a, a group of veterans, not just one veteran in particular, but a group of veterans who are all there with different experiences, different traumas, and they're trying to work with each of them to help them along in their own personal journey. Yeah, well, it's you have to be well well trained to do it formally, to do it professionally. Uh, and I certainly felt that, sorry to interrupt, I certainly felt that in on, on Black Mountain. 
um, yes. specifically. Oh yeah, Lee Lesser, who leads that workshop, uh, and it was the founder, uh, co-founder of Veterans Path. Uh, she's been schooled for at least, I think, 40 years in these practices of sensory awareness, in these practices of mindfulness so, uh, and, and meditation. So, uh, so yes, you know, these are highly skilled individuals, but at the same time, and I, I'll also say, you know, uh, very unhumbly <laughs> that, you know, I've been studying this stuff for 30 years now myself, and, uh, well, I'll just say this. I'm leading a workshop myself on death and dying hmm. uh, with a friend of mine down in Baja at the end of April. So I, f I feel like I'm one of those reasonably skilled individuals. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's partly because I've been trained by these magnificent teachers over so many years. And everything that I filmed in all, all five of these films, I myself have personally experienced and mm -hmm. been through. So, but I don't, I don't want to leave your audience with the impression that you have to be well trained for this kind of thing too. Again, we can, we can bring these practices back into our everyday life, just simply with attention and intention. Um, I'll get back to Lee in a minute, but let's dive into Ben's story. Um, ben, very different than Kalani's story. What drew you to Ben uh, and what did you find in the differences between the two? Well, it's interesting because, um, I tend to think of veterans return on a continuum, okay? So at the extreme beginning end, let's say they've just gotten off the plane, okay? They're right at the beginning of their transition to civilian life. And let's say at the other extreme, they're 100% integrated and identified with their civilian identity and feeling really good about who they are in their lives at this point. Mm -hmm. So I tend to think about Ben as being somewhere closer to the beginning of that journey. Uh, for me, he's, and I'm just throwing out a number here, but maybe 20 to 30% along that journey. Yeah. So for me, he kind of symbolizes um, more those early first steps. Uh, how do I navigate the world as a veteran? And how do I begin to let go and dismantle this uh, identity that I have and begin to build a new identity because that's what's essential. Kalani, on the other hand, I see is uh, farther along. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, I mean, he's at the, the, maybe the 70, 80% mark, if yeah. you will. Mm -hmm. So he's made dramatic leaps and strides in his life. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, he still has a way to go. We all do, right? <laughs> Nobody gets really to 100. But, you know, he's so he's further along. So I tended to think of all of my subjects as somewhere in that continuum. Mm -hmm. And so it was, and it's important to me actually in my ideal world that the order that you mentioned at the beginning of the program is the order that people watch these films. Mm -hmm. So they first see solutions, then they see Ben's story. So they see the beginning of this journey. Mm -hmm. And then as we move on, finally to the last film, Leaving It on the Land, you can see an example of veterans, I think, who've made it maybe the farthest of all. Mm -hmm. um, and going into On Black Mountain, uh, I found this one I felt like it was almost, I don't want to say the most difficult to watch, but certainly as a male, this was a a, a female-centric documentary. Um, and Lee was just so incredible, who was facilitating the, the, the talks, especially with the different personalities that she was dealing with throughout that entire group. Um, 
Um, but what she was able to bring out of each of them and, and the way she was able to get connection with each of them and, and help them to connect with each other um, what was astounding, uh, just an uh, astounding set of stories all, all built within that uh, one particular film. I, I couldn't agree more. And, and just so your listeners know, so that the film is about 22 women veterans mm -hmm. who come together over a four month period uh, to do uh, meditation and mindfulness based um, training. And it's interesting because once I got into the editing room with this story, I was not sure myself. What, what is the story here? Where does it go? And it was only over time that I began to understand it as one in which these women first come together in a very suspicious and even paranoid place where they feel like, you know, well, they don't feel like it. They've had a history of being betrayed and even abused by their own sister comrades in the service, not to mention men and the command structure, et cetera, which is whole nother layers of, of yeah. problems. So, so the journey for me in that film became about how they came together, very isolated, very suspicious, and they actually progressed into this place of bonded sisterhood where they really trusted each other and they really loved on each other. And that to me is beautiful to see. Completely. And I can't imagine going, yeah, like you said, going in after all of uh, the film work is done and you start sitting and splicing it all together. At what, how long did it take you to build that, that sort of spark, that, that narrative with all of the clips and, and uh, video that you had? Well, for that particular story, mm -hmm. for on black yeah, I guess, you know, well, that's the beauty of hiring an editor. <laughs> because <laughs> you, a good I, editor. I, you need a good editor. You need a good editor. Yeah. So I had a wonderful editor. Uh, I gave him some starting ideas, but not that one, which I just told you. Uh, and then he, so he started taking it and shaping it. And then it becomes a dialogue in a sense. So I get to see what direction he's taking it in i think about it and then i redirect him slightly you know uh and it was only maybe halfway through the edit that i hit on that idea here's what our story is you know so that's when we shaped it all the more and then ended up with the final product so actually it didn't take all that long really maybe three four months Mm -hmm. And so that one in particular uh, on Black Mountain, uh, that one was a running time of uh, looking at 49 minutes. How much actual film did you have? Oh, gosh. <laughs> you know, for all, well, our typical shooting ratio is somewhere on the order of at least 40 or 50 to one. Mm -hmm. So that is to say that for every hour of finished film, we've shot 40 or 50 hours of material. Wow. Uh, so that's true for, for all the films, basically. And I can imagine the things that hit the cutting room floor for On Black Mountain, there are things that within that that could probably create its own documentary on itself. Totally, yeah. totally. Um, was there anybody's story in that particular film, On Black Mountain, that stood out to you, just like Kalani and Ben? Well, I had actually been following uh, the subject Becky uh, for a period of time, uh, the woman with blonde hair, mm -hmm. who, in a sense, becomes uh, kind of the, uh, the antagonist, if you will, mm -hmm. of the film. Uh, uh, 
And, you know, she, she was, uh, well, I, I'll tell you the truth. I can't, I can't hide this. It pains my heart to say this, but I just found out a few months ago that a year and a half ago, she took her life. And I, I, I share that partly because I, I can't talk about her without bringing that forward, yeah. but also as a stark reminder that we're dealing with real life and death issues here with these vets. And it, and it devastates me that we have 22 vets a day killing themselves. Mm -hmm. I, I, I can't, I can't fathom that. I, well, I, I can actually, because I understand veterans and how they feel, but, but I want to do everything I can to, to make it stop. So at any rate, that's the reality of what happened with Becky. Uh, it was about a year plus after the workshop ended, or maybe, maybe more, a year and a half, two years. I don't know. We're in COVID time. I can't remember yeah. anything. Right. Yeah. Uh, so at any rate, uh, she, you know, I had filmed a lot with her because I wanted to, to follow her story through a number of years till we saw her come to a place of more acceptance. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and at any rate, and I saw her very clearly as even to the, the left, as it were, on that continuum of Ben. Because if Ben is 20 to 30% along, I saw Becky as maybe five to 10% along. Oh, wow. uh, really struggling with that transition the very beginnings of it even though you know she'd been out of the service for a few years at the time that I met her mm -hmm. so anyway you know her story to me is is the heart of that film really and it's and we see her at the course at the end of these four months come to a place of more acceptance and more love and more bonding yeah so it's all the more devastating to know what happened I'm so sorry to hear that. I, you know, in, in you know, whenever this podcast is released, I had just watched that film this morning and was really taken with her. Um, so that that definitely comes as more of a shock. Uh, just, I think that what you watch in these journeys it, throughout the whole series is you you want to have hope. You want to have hope for them. You want to you want to see them making real change, finding new missions, um, uh, making. Uh, strong choices for their future. Ben even mentions in his story that I want to have a family. I want to have kids. I want to have the dog, you know, I mean, and you want that, you want that for them. I mean, and yes. more so in a documentary, so much more so in a documentary than, than in any, you know, fiction film that I've watched, you, you really feel their struggle. You feel their pain that your camera doesn't shy away from, from what that is. Um, but there is, uh, there you, you, I go back to it. You just want hope for them. And that's, Ah, oh, that's that's devastating to hear. Well, and you know, I I couldn't agree more. And in fact, <clears throat> when I choose subjects to film, I choose them based on my own judgment about the likelihood that they'll actually get across that threshold into a greater self acceptance, into a greater new uh, uh, identity, uh, so that they'll actually, to some degree accomplish this human transformation because as a filmmaker that's what i'm all about i want to film individuals everyday people who are making great strides towards their own human transformation to become the best 
beings they can be during this lifetime. That's what I'm doing. And that's what I want to turn my camera on and film other stories of others doing. It's incredible talent that you have. Um, and I, so I want to get to uh, the last film here, Leaving It on the Land. Um, this one, uh, uh, 12 veterans undergo an ancient 12-day vision fast ceremony, another ritual space out in the wilderness with minimal shelter, fasting, and uh, and they're alone. So I'm sure this one may have been the most difficult to film. It almost sounds like that series on TV. What is it like, you know, where they send everybody out into the woods and say, right. you know, fend for yourself. Um, right. I feel like a veteran has a bit, bit of a, 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 you know, an upper hand on the civilians that are thrown out into like the wilderness. Um, how was this to to go through? This one is the longest of the documentaries, like clocking it at about 100 minutes. Um, so um, or, so what did you experience during that film? Actually, it's 80. It's just 80, 80 minutes. 80 minutes. Yeah. Uh, okay, the so original my... version was 100 minutes, but the the one I, I've recently released is 80. Okay. Yeah. So, and then getting into that particular, it, that entire documentary, I'm sure, was was extremely difficult to, to film. I, you can tell me. Well, yeah. I mean, so we were out there in tents, you know, along with the subjects, you know. <laughs> so when it rained, we were getting rained on too, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, so, yes, there were a lot of logistical challenges, mm -hmm. uh, not the least of which was how do we preserve the integrity of this four-day solo fasting experience for each of our key subjects and, and still gather footage mm -hmm. of it. So uh, long story short, what we finally decided on was I bought GoPro cameras mm -hmm. and I basically gave them to four of our principal subjects, gave them microphones and gave them just very minimal training in the technical aspects of good filmmaking. And then I said, when it comes to the content, up to you, do whatever you want. And I just rolled out a couple options. You know, you could use it as um, a kind of a journal where you basically share every day what's happening to you, what you're feeling, share it to camera. You could make your own little mini documentary about your experiences. You can do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And that was part of the beauty was seeing after the fact what uh, how these different individuals express their individuality through their own unique filmmaking style. Mm -hmm. And they were all very different from each other. So, so that was, again, just one of the key hurdles. So in a sense, the big uh, challenge for the whole thing was this is a sacred event. Mm -hmm. And how do we preserve that sacredness and, while also gathering uh, the footage that we need? and doing it in a professional way. So there was constant negotiation between myself and the key facilitators mm -hmm. over, you know, how are we gonna film this? How are we gonna do that? And so we came up with solutions to all kinds of different problems. And I think that uh, we managed to do both. I think we managed to create a highly professional, extremely moving uh, mm -hmm. filmic experience and I think we preserve the integrity of this sacred uh, passage for these veterans. It, you know, I, I go back to sort of things I've learned over the course of the scuttlebutt and the idea that treatment for trauma is not a one size fits all. You, you, you're not going to be able to have everybody join a ritual circle and 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 take the same experience and the, and the same values from it. Um, 
But over the course of these documentaries, did you find uh, one that in particular that you felt was was really um, affecting, uh, really or really drew in the veterans uh, in their own way, or do you find like the one subject in uh, on Black Mountain said, "I didn't like this. I didn't like this at all." But by the end of the film, suddenly she was, you know, like, "I, I now love you all," and I thought I'd hate you all. Um, I didn't trust you all at the beginning. Now I love you all. So is there there's something about each one of those particular styles uh, that that you found uh, to be the best or to be something that that you weren't expecting? No, I mean I sort of addressed that earlier. Again, I'm agnostic. All right. I want to know is what works. And yeah. all of these processes, well, frankly, I knew they worked in advance because I know these people and I know the beauty and power of the work they've been doing long before our cameras ever showed up. Mm -hmm. So again, it doesn't matter to me if a veteran wants to choose, you know, mindfulness meditation type path, if they want to do this quasi Native American style ritual out in the wilderness with the group called Veteran Rights, if they want to get into circles of support through groups like Healing Warrior Hearts, doesn't matter to me. These are all effective and beautiful processes. So what I encourage veterans, I just ask them, well, what are you drawn to? Mm -hmm. What calls to your spirit more? And then and I, I direct them in that path. So talk to me a bit about uh, the, the Veterans Journey Home. Where can people view these? Uh, is it it's going to film festivals? How are they released? Um, what is the, the avenue for, for viewership? Well, the key thing to do is go to our warriorfilms.org website, click on Veterans Journey Home, our latest film series, and there you'll find all kinds of information and resources. You'll see trailers for all five films you can watch right then and there, uh, but you can also order the films directly from our site, and we sell all five of them for $100. Uh, but in addition, yes, we're out at festivals, although I'm beginning to wind down the festival run now for the films. Um, uh, we'll still enter a few festivals. Uh, in fact, I hope to be back in Beaufort, South Carolina next year in late February with a third of our series because we, we're two for two. We've won two Best Doc Awards there. So, uh, you know, I, I think, and I'm going to show them on Black Mountain, which I have yet to share with them. Uh, mm -hmm. So anyway, that's, that's the thing. And also, if you don't even remember Warrior Films, just go to veteransjourneyhome.com and that will take you to the exact same place. That's great. Um, and I will make sure to add all of these links uh, in the description here. Reminder to everybody watching on YouTube, check out the description. Uh, if you're listening through podcasts, check out the description. All of these links will be there. Uh, I also noticed uh, in what you sent me over for the films that there is a discussion guide. So there's educational materials for this as well. Is, uh, how is that being worked? Does this go to colleges or how, how does that work? It goes to anybody who wants it. Oh, great. I, I wrote it myself. You know, like I, how I was talking about that continuum idea? That's in there. There's all kinds of my thinking that's, you know, again, derivative of now almost 20 years of uh, working with vets and reading books and really thinking deeply about these subjects that is woven into this material. So we happily give it away to anybody who wants it. Um, and yes, it's for use in classrooms, whether it's grammar school or up through college, it doesn't really matter. Um, but I'll also mention to your listeners that if you do go to our site, please sign up and get on our mailing list. The reason being because eventually we do hope these films will be broadcast on television, you know, whether it's PBS or 
HBO or wherever, uh, that's our intention. And so that way, if you're on our mailing list, we can let you know uh, when it's going to be on TV and also when we might be coming to your area to do in-person screenings. Uh, we at the BBC have, have shown our documentary, We Left His Brothers, as um, on that stream TV. Um, so I don't know if uh, they're a wonderful resource um, and have been great with us. Through these films, do you feel that they are more important for non-vets to take in or vets themselves? I think it's important for both. We actually have three different sort of uh, social strata that we're trying to reach with these films. One is the policymakers, the people at the VA and in Washington and in state and even local governments to try to educate them about, let's not just throw meds at vets. You know, let's put them into sacred circles where we can all accomplish a tremendous amount of learning and healing. The second group is, of course, vets themselves. If we can prevent one veteran from taking his or her own life with these films, then we have done a, a, a good job. You know, and I think based on just anecdotal evidence from other vets who I know have seen these films, we're already doing that. Uh, so that's great. But then thirdly, yes, civilians, average citizens, it's important that they see these films and begin to understand the depth and complexity and the meaning of veterans' experience. Because until they do, we have a dysfunctional society. Agreed. Um, how can people support Warrior Films? You mentioned it was a nonprofit. Correct. Yeah. On our website, you'll find a place to donate too. So if you want to donate, God bless you. You know, we can always use it. <laughs> Keeps the lights on, right? Yes. <laughs> um, Frederick, uh, thank you so much, not only for joining me on The Scuttlebutt, but for producing and directing these these incredible films um, that, you know, like I said, they greatly moved me. Um, so I hope that our audience takes the opportunity to jump on your website and, and view each and every one of them. Um, they're, they're incredibly educational and and, and not just because you learn about a veteran's experience, you just you 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 get that sense of what they've been through, and you it helps you to maybe in the future have a conversation with a veteran if you've never done it. Um, that's something that that I always go back to here on the scuttlebutt. I joined the VBC a couple years ago. I had no idea how to talk to a veteran. I was sort of afraid to do it, in fact, and it 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 helped me greatly to be able to sit down with vets and really just start to talk to them about their experiences, hear their stories. As you can see behind me, stories unite us. Um, it's it's something that we hang our hat on here at VBC, and something that uh, I'm so happy to see uh, out there in the world. Uh, filmmakers creating stories and and showing their stories to a in, in a different medium. Um, just thank you for all of that. Well, thank you, for, uh, because you reminded me that at the end of our discussion guide, I have practical steps that civilians can take and don't just give a handshake and a thank you for your service to a vet, offer them a cup of coffee, a tea, a lunch, and sit down with them and say, listen, I'm all ears. Please share with me what it is you have to share and be compassionate witnesses. That's mm -hmm. what we have to become. So anyway, there's all kinds of practical ideas exactly like that at the back of this discussion guide. So thank you for saying that. Sure. And as a so the last question doesn't necessarily maybe deal with documentaries here, but here on the Scuttlebutt every season, uh, we get together with a filmmaker, uh, an army vet, uh, a close friend of mine, and we do war movie reviews. So I had to ask, 
we need two recommendations for our next war movie review. The last one I believe we did, uh, you know, over Overkill, I think was a Nazi zombie movie. You know, we, we kind of dabble in a bunch of different ones. We've uh, done um, uh, The Last Walk Home, different things like that. So it's something fun that we get together. We we dive into a couple movies and then we sit down and like Roger and Ebert and just, you know, and Cisco and Ebert and we'd sit down and we, we hash out our thoughts on them. But I thought I'd ask you specifically two recommendations for war movies that we could take in next. Well, yeah, I, I'll tell you what comes to my mind are, are very challenging documentaries. Please. Um, uh, you know, one of them was made in 1969 by Marcel Ophuls, a German filmmaker who lived in France called The Sorrow and the Pity. And mm. it's all about the Second World War and it's all about the French uh, participation in the Second World War. Mm -hmm. And basically, the filmmaker, through a lot of extensive and often painful interviews with average people, makes it clear that, you know, there were a lot of French civilians who were all too happy to accommodate Nazi rule of their country for the four years that the Nazis occupied France. So anyway, I really recommend that film. And then um, uh, there's a film back even further, 1956, by another French filmmaker, an Alain René, called Night and Fog. And it is one of the landmarks of documentary filmmaking, also uh, about the Second World War, but mostly about the Holocaust and the camps. Uh, it's just a stunning film, and it, it holds power even to this day, 70 years later. Awesome. I will bring that to my my film crew and we'll uh, we'll definitely pull those in to the to the rotation. Thank you for those suggestions. Um, Frederick, uh, anything last you'd like to, our audience to know about uh, Veterans Journey Home? Um, I'd like to give you the final word here. Well, thank you. Uh, no, I just would say, you know, please uh, take a look at the films and then please let us know what you think. And please let us know if there's people in your community that we can share them with. Mm -hmm. uh, because we love to set up screenings at VFWs, uh, at any kind of community center, you know, uh, even at VA um, uh, medical centers. You know, we will go anywhere, anytime and show these films. Uh, and we want nothing more than to reach people with them and to make the most lasting, deep impact that we can. And if they can't get in touch with you, Frederick, feel free, my audience, reach out to me, Sean, S-H-A-U-N at veteransbreakfastclub.org. I'd be happy to pass you along to Frederick uh, if you'd like a screening in your area. Um, and please like, share, subscribe, and ring the bell on YouTube so you're the first to know whenever we release new episodes. Uh, and thank you so much, Frederick. Again, I hope to see you again on a future episode of The Scuttlebutt. Thanks, Sean. A pleasure being with you. Thank you for watching this episode of The Scuttlebutt. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Tobacco Free Adagio Health. Uh, Tobacco Free Adagio Health has been supporting the podcast for quite some time now. We've been so pleased to be uh, supported by them. They are dedicated to reducing and preventing tobacco use and getting the word out about the hazards of smoking and secondhand smoke. They're all about health, so they want people to quit. Uh, they have classes, nicotine replacement therapy, and a popular quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. They also educate people, children especially, about tobacco use from cigarettes, cigars, pipes, chew, snuff, and other nicotine products like vaping. And finally, Tobacco Free Adagio Health advocates for public and private policies that ensure healthy places to live, 
work, and play. You can learn all about what Tobacco-Free Adagio Health offers at tobaccofree.adagiohealth.org. Or you can check out the two Scuttlebutt episodes that featured Tobacco-Free Adagio Health. We had a wonderful representative come on to the podcast, talk to us about all the classes and therapies that they offer. Uh, it was one, two wonderful conversations, so I definitely direct you to both of those if you want more information, or just call their free quit line, 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Thank you again, Tobacco-Free Adagio Health, for your support.